Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On Commons People this week, the biggest shake-up in party politics for a generation. The bottom line is this. Politics is broken. It doesn't have to be this way. Let's change it. What's next for the independent group? So yes, we are putting our heads above the parapet and we might fail. But isn't the prize worth fighting for? And I sense the country wants us to fight for it too. And I, for one, am prepared to give it everything I've got. And meanwhile, Theresa May ploughs on. The UK's relationship with the European Union has been a source of disagreement in my party and also in the country for a long time. And leaving the European Union after over 40 years was never going to be easy. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh, extremely tired in a week where 11 MPs have broken away from Labour and the Tories to form a new independent group in Parliament. Joining me today is one of the MPs who quit Labour, it's Gavin Shuker. Also tired. Hi Gavin. <laughs> Hi, you're right. I'm fine, thanks. How are you? <laughs> I'm quite tired. Quite tired. Yeah. <laughs> Political editor Paul War also joins us. Uh, equally knackered, yeah. And politics reporter Rachel Wearmouth is also here. Hello. Hi. Also tired? Uh, yeah, I'm also contracting flu, which I think is, oh. <laughs> is connected. Splitters <laughs> flu. Yeah. Well, what a, yeah. <laughs> well, what a week it's been. Eight Labour MPs and three Tories have quit their parties, and it looks like more could follow. Here's Labour's deputy leader, Tom Watson, summing up how many of the splitters feel by admitting he sometimes doesn't recognise his own party. I love this party but sometimes I no longer recognise it. And that's why I do not regard those who've resigned today as traitors. I fear they've left at a critical moment for the country when all our attention should be on solving the Brexit crisis. So I regard them as people who've drawn the wrong conclusion to a serious question. I confess I feared this day would come. And I fear now that unless we change, we may see more days like this. Paul, so is this the beginning of a great realignment in British politics or just a flash in the pan? Well, I mean, Gavin will obviously have his bit of to say on that. But um, from my point of view, what's interesting about it is that the difference between the Tory defectors and the Labour defectors so far. Um, I mean, generally, you can say about, is it a flash in the pan? There's that brilliant Chinese premier in the 1970s, Yuan Lai, who said, when asked about the French Revolution, he said, well, it's too early to tell. So it's too early to tell. You know, we're just mm-hmm. a few days in. Um, who knows really whether this is going to be a major tectonic shift or whether or not it will all get drowned out by Brexit. One worry I think you guys have got is that the real risk is it somehow may squeak through a deal on her Brexit plan, somehow gets enough Tories over the line and fewer your people, uh, former colleagues over the line, and then what you're left with, you're slightly high and dry. If Brexit's gone as a cause celeb, uh, you know... Well, I think that's the interesting thing for, for, the, for the independent group. You know, what have they got left if Brexit happens? What, what do they coalesce around? Is there something bigger? Now, and I think that's why there's a difference between the Tories and the Labour MPs. For the Tory MPs, I'm not quite sure why they're really, really upset with May other than for Brexit. Yeah, all right, the tone on welfare, but, you know, people at like Amber Road will say stick with us, we'll sort it. But for Labour MPs like Gavin, there's obvious reasons why they don't want to ever set foot in the Labour Party again while Jeremy Corbyn's leader. It's the security stuff, anti-Semitism, obviously, but a wider thing about, you know, just which way... Is the Labour Party heading? Is it too left for the voters in terms of its economic policy or whatever? Um, so I think there's there's obviously a, a body of opinion there for the Labour MPs going forward, but for the Tories, I'm not so sure. Gavin? I suppose the risk is uh, a politician is sometimes you become a commentator and forget you're actually on the pitch. But as a commentator, what would I say? <laughs> um, look, I, I, mean, I think both parties are heading for some version of a historic split. 
uh, I think you can see very clearly on the Labour side the forces that are pulling it apart and Paul outlined them really well there but bear in mind it's not just about who leads it uh, in a sense the um, the argument made by the seven that went on Monday the 8th and went on Tuesday was this party has been fundamentally captured at every level change the leader it's still fundamentally a different party outside of the kind of direction of travel for the last hundred years or so. On the Tory side, absolutely, the three that have joined the independent group are clearly motivated as Brexit is their number one concern. But of course, Brexit is a proxy in the Conservative Party now for where it's going to go. And the Tories have got to decide within their electoral coalition, are they going to tack further to the right after Theresa May, put in place a clear Brexiteer, have a vision around you know kind of low tax low regulation away from that one nation tradition and actually my assessment is i think that is exactly where they will go and so for many conservative mps they want the softest possible brexit and just try and hold it together but it's clear that they're the erg is the emerging force um theresa may's government is significantly to the right of where david cameron's was in other words both these parties are vacating that radical centre ground that we talked about on Monday. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I've been speaking to a Tory MP this week who says that would be the trigger to go if they have a hard Brexiteer leader and, um, you know, pursue that kind of low-tax, low-regulation policy. So, I mean, thankfully it's not something I have to worry about and didn't have to worry about before, but the leadership rules are pretty clear. You know, I think everyone will pile in on the Tory side uh, if Brexit ever gets resolved uh, and they get rid of May you're going to have one which is very clearly in that Brexiteer tradition and one which is probably a bit softer. And I would guess, given where the Tory membership is, it's only going to continue to go to the right. That, we know, is something that a number of Tory MPs have said that they could not countenance remaining in. And if you've got people saying it publicly, that suggests a very severe split below the surface privately as well. Paul, you touched on an interesting point just then. You you sort of said... how does this new independent group unite um, on other things other than Brexit? So in the press conference on Wednesday, we saw Anna Soubry stand up and give a full-throated defence of George Osborne's chancellorship and the coalition cuts. I mean, how did you feel when that was going on, Kevin? Well, yeah, and I, I mean, I voted against a lot of that stuff in the past. Look, we are going to be a group that have all got history. Um, and is much more defensive of her time, particularly in the coalition government. And I think she was making argument about liberal values being much kind of more clearly extolled at that period of time. Um, others like Heidi have kind of stood up and gone, actually, we've made the situation far, far worse. What we're really clear on together, though, is just at the point at which you could see an end point to austerity, to then have a cliff edge Brexit, a no deal Brexit, um, the events that are about to play out that would plunge the economy back into austerity is our number one issue that we've got to clear and to try and avoid. Um, you know, in a sense, I think it's probably fairer to voters to just say, look, we, you know, you can look at our records. We haven't always agreed. That's what life is like. But we're coming together and trying to forge something new. And we've outlined our values, obviously, uh, on Monday or Wednesday, and there'll be more expression to it. So, so I, what I'm kind of interested in is. I know you've talked a lot about your values, but have you thought specifically about what kind of voter you're looking for? You know, who who you would want to attract to vote for? Well, in a sense, that's and it's kind of a blessing and a curse, isn't it? You know, we formed an independent group. It's not a political party. We've all kind of said, look, we think if there's a demand in the country for this, in a sense, we don't need to worry about it. It's going to be birthed um, in in a party form. So, um, so you may never become a party. Well. If in the country people say, actually, there's no demand for this, we wouldn't vote for it, what's the point in going through the process of establishing that? I do think there's some early signs that seem to suggest that it might be uh, a fruitful route to go down um, in terms of people coming to the website, giving small donations and some of the polling that's out there. But look, we're just not going to cook it up in Westminster. If people want it, they'll express that desire for it. And in a sense, to go to the heart of your question it'll answer itself you'll be able to see who it is that really is motivated to build something in the radical center but isn't that a slight cop-out Gav? In, in that actually you're crowdsourcing the public for your 
politics in a way. You're mm. you're trying to rely on them. To, isn't it all about? Shouldn't it really? You've been brave enough to take the leap. Should you be brave enough to do the leadership bit now as well? This is what we want. Please follow us. We're not following you. We're giving you a direction. If you like it, please follow us. Yeah, sure. I mean, we're on day four. Um, <laughs> so give us give us a chance. Look, if we're still in the same place in a month's time, two months' time, three months' time, in terms of definition around, well, what does this independent group believe? You know, practically, how do they vote? What do they do? Um then there's kind of no point. There's got to be a process that builds that out. But I stood up on Monday and I made a really simple argument. I said, look, here are our values. And in a sense, they sound sensible and mainstream and therefore really easy to kind of, you know, prod and go, oh, they don't believe in anything because they just believe in things that everyone believes. But neither of the two major political parties are embodying that set of beliefs at the moment. They are deliberately running away from them. And in a sense, our argument is to say, look, you've just got to make an argument for these values. How will we decide how we vote on things? Well, we're going to talk to each other, you know. How are we going to approach the next thing that kind of comes out of the great blue sky? We're going to resolve it as a group. Um, But you know what our values are, and you can hold us accountable to them. That's interesting. Can I ask you about that on your wall? We're in Gavin Schubert's office here, and uh, there's a note on the wall with a quote from Bukowski. What matters most is how well you walk through the fire. Yeah, so uh, this is the newest thing on my wall. It's right next to my rebellions on uh, the European Union <laughs> notification of withdrawal bill letter from the chief whip. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I stay down. On, I normally uh, go out to Luton, but I had to stay down on Monday night given all the circus. And when I got back to my hotel room, the very nice staff had written that on a card and they said, come down to the bar for a free drink. Uh, unlike the Labour Party, you'll always have a home at name of hotel. <laughs> I can't <laughs> yeah, do yeah, yeah. advertising for it. Um, and actually, do you know what? Pretty much every single interaction I've had with someone, whatever I've done this week, I was just in the corner shop last night, and a guy came in, oh, Gavin Shuka. And I was like, hi, how you doing? He's like, oh, you've been on the news. I was like, what do you think about it? And he was like, well, you know, something's got to change, hasn't it? And I thought... People are just pretty decent about this. What they saw on Monday, what they saw on Wednesday, whatever they thought of the people doing it or the content, was a group of people in politics just standing up and just being unremittingly honest about the situation they're in and what they think about it. Um, that's really powerful, actually. It's really powerful. I was at the uh, launch, yeah. on, launch on Monday, um, and from Luciana's body language was very much, you could tell she was sad, and yeah. it was quite a difficult day for her. I think... Chukarumina was somewhat more upbeat, <laughs> but I, I found you a little bit harder to read. What was I mean, I mean, your unscrutable. response that day? Uh, <laughs> poke player. Yeah, um, I mean, to be honest, I've just had so long to come to terms with this basically being the only responsible place to go to kind of equip the duties on me that, you know, I, what my emotions, they're pretty stoical. They were like... I'm really glad we're at this moment, but getting to 11am and the end of this press conference is is not the task. The task now is to build out this whole thing. And I suppose of all of those people on the stage, it's probably fair to say I'm probably the one that feels that the most acutely. Um, a lot of the process to get us to this point has come about through some of the work that I've been doing and helping other people to kind of get into that mind space and okay. and so in a sense I was already thinking what comes next and next and further down the line I, it, it's a big day uh, but uh, it felt right and a lot of colleagues were coming up at the end of the day and just saying are oh, you alright you know I'm so sad about it you know it must be awful for you and I honestly was like today's been a, just a really good day there was an awkward moment, though, almost straight after the press conference when Angela Smith went on the BBC and seemed to suggest that um, ethnic minority people have a funny tinge. You must have had your head in your hands at that moment. Yeah, I mean, I've not seen the clip in all honesty, but she apologised yeah. straight afterwards. Completely the right thing to do. I think she's really clunky in what she was trying to express. It's not what I know of her um, at all, and it, she made the point herself. Um, but look, we're, we're going to screw things up as we go through this process. Um, probably some things uh, bigger and smaller than that. And I think what you have to do, and in a sense, it's really more important than us because we're trying to do something differently culturally, 
is when we get things wrong, just say, look, I'm really sorry. I just, I've just <laughs> done back-to-back interviews. It came out in a really clunky way. Put your hands up to it and try and move on. I think what was interesting about that was the way she did swiftly do an apology. But also, from my understanding, from what I understand, why she said what she said, she was actually not talking about people from black and ethnic minorities, specifically when she said that. She was quoting back at Ash Sarkar, yeah. who just talked about a pinkish colour of her f- white father. And she corrected herself and said, oh, he's white. Actually, he's not white, he's pink. He made a joke about him being you know, sunburned. And so, as I understand it, this is exactly what, um, what Angela Smith was trying to do. She was trying to just quote that. And she was not talking about people from BME background. She was talking about white people having a, a funny tinge. So she was trying to quote back, but in a very, very clear clumsy way and explaining all that now in a podcast is sort of yeah, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know kind of understandable but on live tv yeah, yeah. you know i'm not making excuses for her but i just that's what i understand that actually she was really intending clumsy and bizarre i think was, yeah was yeah deprived now labor's response to this is risking more defections isn't it and and what does theresa may need to do to stem the tide paul and what is she doing well, um, you're right about Labour. I mean, the really interesting thing was straight after PMQs, we had uh, Jeremy Corbyn's spokesman came straight out and really went for Gavin and Co. Uh, and said, you know, well, we know what they're part of this establishment coalition now, the old politics, you know, Tory tax cuts, Tory austerity, privatisation. And we all said, well, where did you get that policy perspectives mm. from? He said, well, they said it at their launch, didn't they? Or sort of Chris Leslie said it, didn't they? We said, well, no, he didn't actually. Um, but it's clear what, they, what they're getting at is they they think that anyone who doesn't agree with what the the current direction of policy is is really they're, they're flipping it around against them and and people like Gavin and saying look well if you're not in favor of renationalizing the water companies then you're in favor of privatization aren't you and so they're being quite you know uh, black and white about it um, and you can see from their point of view why it's definition they really want to sort of make life difficult outside the Labour Party but the ter- Theresa May completely different approach and that's why I come back to that point where it's you can it's easier to see why people like Gavin have left Labour Party because the definition the differences are so much clearer with the leadership but with Theresa May it's harder if for example there was say for example I don't know say Sajid Javi became Tory leader you can imagine actually someone like Wollaston or Hey Allen or even Anna Subri going back to the Tory parties and actually if he set, resets the direction on welfare, if he resets the direction on possibly on immigration, I don't know. But that's why I think it's quite interesting. She, the PM, deliberately set out to be emollient to those defectors, unlike Jeremy Corbyn. Well, Heidi Allen actually said yesterday that she wanted to destroy the Tory party. She did. Party. Do you want to destroy Labour? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd far rather in a situation in which the this Labour Party, which I think is clearly a threat to our national security, a really worrying set of trends on anti-Semitism, uh, you know, the narrowing of debate, you know, all the reasons we've already laid out, I don't think part of the label, I don't think that set of values should have a place in our politics. I think it's really scary. Um now, there's obviously a debate in the Labour Party, which I'm no longer a member of, woo, um, to say, well, you know, amongst the stay and fight brigade, saying, well, do you know what? We should stay, we should fight. The Labour Party is this great electoral vehicle. We can take it back. I don't have that faith-based position, because let's be honest, it's a faith-based, you know, there's no evidence that you can stitch together that gets you back to where you are other than something will turn up. Um yeah, I don't. I don't think that should have a place in our politics, regardless of the party label. Um, the the key question for us, of course, is: is this a electoral force that is emerging? In which case, you've got a mechanism to do that. And do you do you think actually? Sorry, do you, do you think one of your colleagues who to remain nameless, one of one of the eight, said to me recently that they thought the Labour Party was now a quotes a death cult. In other words, it was it was really doomed because it was on that direction of disconnecting from a lot of voters. Do you do you agree with that? that it's inevitable that Corbynism, if not Corbyn, is going to end up with an electoral failure. I mean, they all argue, look, we increased seats, we increased votes the last election. Uh, and you could argue that the more the Tories are in power, the more people actually vote against governments rather than for oppositions, and that's how elections are decided. I mean, or yeah. do, you, do you think it's inevitable that Corbynism is electorally doomed? No, I don't, actually. Um, I think that when you've got a government this shambolic just purely on the competence, let alone the heartlessness of it, 
um, that people, when they're presented with that, want an alternative. Now, in 2017, you saw how that played out. You know, Labour had a far better set of electoral results than anyone would have expected going in, including its own MPs. Why? was quite a lot of complex analysis, but basically because it presented an alternative. Not a very attractive alternative in our view, but an alternative. Uh, Now, look, if something doesn't open up here, of course, the Corbyn project is electable. The question is what you do about that. And there'll be people listening who think that's fantastic and other people listening that will say, actually, that's really scary. Um, And therefore, comes back to the responsibility point. I can keep my head down in the Labour Party, try and manage my way through, but I don't think that meets up to the principles of public life, where you've got a responsibility, if you've got some power, to try and avoid really bad things from happening. But the only way you can do that is to create a hopeful alternative, and that's what I hope we're going to do. I was at um, uh, Love Socialism Hate Brexit last night with um, quite a few of um, Jeremy Corbyn's left-wing allied politicians mm. and uh, Lloyd, Lloyd, Russell Moyle, Lloyd Russell Moyle was among them and, and he described um, the Labour breakaway MPs as scabs. Mm. Um, how did that go down? I mean, I, I saw, the, saw the quote. I mean, in a sense, all this anger is directed, you know, just out into the, the ether. Like, Lloyd needs to understand we're not, we're not Labour Party members anymore. The kind of abuse and the tactics that people had been consistently trying to use to make us shut up, go away, suppress our views on anti-Semitism, on the narrowing of debate in the party, on national security, all these issues, they don't work anymore. We're just, we're not there anymore, Lloyd. And in a sense, it'll be great because it can motivate a group of people to call another group of people scabs. But in a sense, doesn't that illustrate the problem? There's There's an incentive on current serving members of the Labour Party to abuse other politicians. That's that's worrying. Did, did you connect some of that to, to the growing influence of Unite in, in the Labour Party? Um, I mean, there was an argument really strongly going around when Len, Len McCuskey, was, you know, challenged for the leadership and so on. Don't worry, Len is... We all know that Len's the one pulling the strings behind the scenes, but there's a possibility of a challenge or, you know, whatever early days I think a lot of the plan A lot in the Labour Party people that are definitely stay fight they were looking to that for salvation um, yeah there is a massive growing influence of Unite in the Labour Party and of course in the 80s uh, you know people that make parallels between this moment and now point to the sensible moderate trade unions as being a key part of pulling the Labour Party back that doesn't describe where the Labour Party is right now the, those that control the unions, not the members of them, but those that control them are very firmly in that Corbynite agenda. And look at what Len's saying, for example, on Brexit. It gives you an indication of where I think the leadership want to get to on Brexit, which is enabling it, but being able to do everything they can to not get their fingers anywhere near it. So that's partly why you think it's not salvageable as a project, the Labour Party, because it's not just captured by its members, but also captured by the unions. Is that is that fair? Yeah, I mean, Mike Gape stood up uh, at the presser on Monday and he said look let me take this point about staying and fighting head on I did stay and I did fight and I was in the trenches in the 80s with Mandelson and Kinnock and you know all of these colleagues I stayed and I fought and I saw it back but this is a magnitude difference from that period it's a fundamentally different set of circumstances and since 2017 when many of us stood on a ticket that was very clearly kind of Corbyn sceptic direction of travel and so on very explicit in our literature and and so on you know we were very much in the mindset if you do you stay and you fight that's your responsibility you can put up with the abuse if you can see a route through and um, after that moment when the election results came in and it showed well actually there's a viable project here you saw the capturing of the NEC the disputes panel the PLP you know if you had a vote of no confidence in the parliamentary Labour Party in Jeremy Corbyn today as we did after the EU referendum, I don't think he'd be carried. I think he'd be supported in terms of confidence. That's interesting. It is a fundamentally changed party at every level. And in a sense, the argument that I have tried to advocate is if you, in your heart of hearts, know that's the truth, you can't 
you can't stay. What's your counterpoint to all those Corbynistas who say, actually, look, putting members first is real democracy. That actually is just open up the party, thanks to Ed Miliband, and real people, not just the you know a minority of former militants have come back, but actually a lot of the bulk of the new members are sort of, you know, they're social workers, they're teachers, they're not necessarily directly political. They just like the fact that Jeremy Corbyn's saying something clear and anti-Tory, and they're really attracted to that. Um, what? Do you, how do you counter that? Do you is is your argument that actually look? Even 200,000 people is still a tiny, tiny number of people. It's enough to dominate a party, but it's not enough to win an election. Is it? And they don't ref- represent Britain. I mean, how do you counter the member-led argument? Uh, well, in some sense, I don't have to, because yeah, I'm obviously yeah. left the Labour party. That's probably a question for my colleagues uh, that have remained, uh, who share the same analysis, but not the outcome. But what do I think? I think there has always been an appetite at the hard left, electorally. You saw most of those people leave in the 80s and then basically we put in place a series of events that led to opening up the system for them to be able to flood back in very easily and they did it's a very sizable number of people that members of the Labour Party people are obviously leaving over Brexit but it goes to the second point which is this if you are genuinely a member-led organisation that means reflecting in terms of policy 80% of Labour members this isn't just anecdotal, this polling, want a second referendum. They want to get off the Brexit path they're on. The majority of Labour voters voted Remain with a lot more enthusiasm than Jeremy Corbyn supposedly did, right? Uh, Actually, despite that, despite the fact that the most fundamental issue of our times, Labour Party members are fundamentally opposed with the direction of travel of this leadership, they still come out and defend him to the hilt. In other words, and it's an amazing phenomenon, but in other words... For them, the Corbynite project is more important than any other issue. Now, for me, that's quite worrying. And I think it's producing big, uncontrollable forces through our politics. This is one of the expressions of it this week. Um, But actually, yeah, I mean, ultimately, you can only be a party of the members that are there. And that isn't going to change anytime soon. Um, Kevin, I just wanted to ask you one more around this. Before we move on, it seems to me your priority is stopping Corbyn becoming Prime Minister. So I want to just throw ahead to some kind of hypothetical general election situation in which the independent group wins some seats. Would you enter a coalition confidence and supply deal to stop Corbyn becoming Prime Minister if it came to it? Without sounding like a politician, let me just challenge the premise of your question. (laughs) (laughs) You're not allowed to do that. Oh, no, it's a politician. (laughs) Um, No, uh, my. My primary motivation is not that at all, it's to build something hopeful that in electoral terms potentially could see off the threat um, presented on both sides. But on the no, uh, just to to understand on the no confidence stuff, let me tell you a story. So I went into um, uh, Cabinet Office about a month ago when Theresa May was in full listening mode and sat down with David Linton while I was a Labour MP and I said, look, uh, you can have my support to pass any deal you like on Brexit. It can be Norway, it can be Theresa May's deal, it can be Canada, whatever you want, you can have my vote. But at the end of it, I want a confirmatory referendum. And you know what? If you do that, British politics is going to be shaken quite a bit if you get that through. I'm willing to extend confidence and supply to your government so it doesn't fall over through the period of the referendum. You know, if it's a year, then fine. You know, this is so much more important than a general election or what happens in an electoral cycle or what even happens to the parties. Brexit is the most fundamental challenge we face as a country. Now, they obviously didn't choose to go down that route. But if you're asking me about future hypotheticals in which the maths of Parliament is so kind of um, uh, febrile, uh, it it comes down to, to use the cliche, doing the right thing by the country. I don't think people want a general election. More importantly, we need a general election like a hole in the head right now. We're 900 hours to Brexit uh, and we're going to crash out without a deal unless something replaces that. Uh, I think the most sensible way forward is for the government to adopt what's been known, what's become Kyle, uh, the Kyle Amendment, uh, because it would do exactly what I said before there. And in those circumstances, yeah, I think the national interest would be served by seeing a period of stability to get that referendum done. Interesting. 
Carl Wilson, as it will become known. Carl Wilson. Carl Wilson. <laughs> sounds like one person. Yeah, it sounds like an American <laughs> pop band style. Yeah. Yeah. solicitors. Yeah. Yeah. The, the six Backstreet Boys. Were there five of them? <laughs> <laughs> now, the three Tory splitters um, said yesterday they only decided to go after watching the Labour breakaway on Monday, but um, we know that at least some of you Labour MPs have been planning to go for a while. Now, let's hear from Peter Mandelson, insisting he, neither he nor Tony Blair knew about the split. Indeed, Tony Blair and I exchanged emails last on Monday of this week and where we both said to each other, did you know about this? And neither of us did. So, Gavin, how did this start? When and how did we get to this point? I think um, I came to the conclusion pretty quickly after the 2017 election that I certainly couldn't stand again for election to put in a Corbyn uh, Labour project, as it was. And therefore, I knew at some point in this parliament... I'd cease to be a, a Labour MP. Um, I think by the autumn of 2017, I'd reached the conclusion that you also therefore had to have... Look, even, if you, even if you think Plan A is the route through and stay and fight and say about the Labour Party, there needs to be some grown-ups in a room somewhere thinking about a Plan B. That's responsible. You can't... You know, We saw what happened in the aftermath of the EU referendum in the Labour Party... It was an outpouring of emotion. It was a no confidence in Corbyn. It was people resigning. There was no coherence to it. Um, and so I think, to be honest, I just started having conversations with people. It weren't difficult to have and just saying, look, we've at least got to explore this. That obviously chunked through, you know, to this process here um, where I think there is a potentially electorally viable route through, but it comes through actually individual MPs kind of, it's a bit of a paradox, right? How do I become more powerful by giving my power away? You know, for years we've been told the way in which you are powerful in, in this setup is you stick with the party and the party line. You know, if you keep your head down, you'll get to come back at the next election. We've given it all up. As of today, I don't think any of us would be re-elected in our seats if, uh, you know, if there were a general election. Uh, that's the central paradox. And... Uh, why what I wanted to do in a sense was make sure that those people that are standing uh, for that are moving uh, you know over to the independent group they're joined together by their characters as well you know it's a really hard thing to do but if we don't have that steeliness you know the idea that someone's going to lead you know 50 or 100 people out of the Labour Party against their will you can't build something with that you need a smaller group of people that are absolutely determined this is the right thing to do because we're about to go through some challenging uh, weeks, I suspect. Um, Paul, we know that people like Jonathan Powell and other big Blairite figures have been talking about and making plans for a centrist party for a while. Gavin and his lot say there's no connection. What do you yeah. think? Well, you've got to take them at their word. I mean, I mean, Gavin, you, you did you register yeah. the... Was it in January you registered a yeah, so we, name so, or something? Yeah, we... Um, so, to ensure... In Trump secrecy, I imagine... No, actually, I just uh, went to company's house and no one obviously follows me. So that's <laughs> Why don't uh, I? Yeah, um, it, we, it, we just thought, what's a nice generic name that doesn't uh, mean that it becomes a story, uh, you know, a month before? Uh, look, basically, um, I thought that the most sensible route through to ensure transparency over what we're doing, you know, we've already said that we'll commit to, uh, you know, publishing any bigger donors that we get, uh, you know, we want it. I've already met with the electoral commission and so on, but you need a legal vehicle, and that was the best uh, shape that we could come up with. Um, but these things take a little bit of time to put in place, and so actually, that had to come on the sixteenth of January in order for us to to do it in this time period. Well, you, met, you mentioned transparency, but a lot of people will hear that and think, um, "So where is the money coming from? Are you able to say anything about how much money you've had so far?" Uh, that's a really good question, actually. <laughs> what I can tell you. Uh, I think we'll probably say a bit more towards the end of the week. But what I can tell you is that by far, any money that's come in has been small online donations by like an alarming ratio. Um, we're not getting in huge amounts of kind of big donors with, I mean, this fifty million pound idea that is out there, you know, a war chest or anything like that. Um, but we're we're getting people going on the website and giving forty or fifty pounds a lot. Um, so. So, well, so, have say, had, so have you had any big donations then, anything? I, I don't, I'm not quite sure what yeah. you consider a big donation to be, but... 
uh, well, we've aligned ourselves with the Electoral Commission's rules, which is anything over seven and a half thousand. And they'll, I think, you know, uh, we'll be able to say more probably towards the end of the week. But we're talking about a handful of those. Really, the vast majority of what's come in since day one has been small online donations, and uh, it has outstripped my expectations by quite some margin. It's a teaser, there you go. Was it always seven from 2017 when you were exploring these plans, or did, did certain events trigger more to join the group? Um, we had kind of a rolling... Co- you know, everyone in Westminster talks to each other, don't they? But we had a rolling conversation in a sense of 20 or 30 people that were in the kind of space where they were at least willing to countenance the idea that you had to do some thinking about a plan B. Now, actually, the seven that went were the ones that I think ultimately just had the strongest conviction that this is the right way to do it. Which um, conducted over WhatsApp, as everything seems to be these days. Yeah, it's a bit of it, but actually I I much prefer just people sitting together and having a proper conversation. And there was some reporting... Where did um, you meet? Where did you yeah. meet? Sorry. Yeah, there was some reporting back in the summer... Uh, around uh, a place called Fair Oak Farm. So um, two or three times we actually went away just for an overnight and just sat around and talked about what's the direction and the future. Um, uh, And that, to be honest, has been one of the most helpful things. We don't do that in politics, right? We don't ever take the time out to genuinely listen and eat together and vent and just have a sense that, uh, you know, there's you've got a responsibility and you're going to have to figure it out because there's no one else in the room. Um, and I think culturally it's taught us that you can't be tribal if you're trying to do this thing right. It's got to be, you can't take the machine politics of the Labour Party with you. You've got to dump it. Um, and now the Tories are going to have the same challenge. That's been the thing that's united us, I think. It's interesting. So it's almost like a political rural retreat almost. Yeah. yeah. Were you in dorms or did you have your own room? No, there's a few rooms. I did the cooking... What did you cook? Uh, I, I did a great little chicken and chicory dish. <laughs> very nice. Jamie Oliver? Um, yeah, I think it might have been, yeah. <laughs> He'll be proud, wouldn't yeah, he? Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, so and if he wants to give it, I'm very happy to take <laughs> it. Who was, who, who was the worst cook, or did you do, always do the cooking? Um, uh, actually, uh, I was probably the worst cook as well. Uh, <laughs> but you just did most of it. Yeah, just, you know, just run out and pick it up. <laughs> and did anyone try and persuade you to stay? I don't think anyone did try and persuade me to stay. You know, you have a lot of conversations with colleagues where they're like, um, oh, you know, I hope no one does anything silly. Or um, The problem is fundamentally, those that would have that conversation share our analysis. They hope that something's going to turn up. Uh, we think it isn't. And that's why we've taken this step and history will figure out what's the right way to go. Um, but... Once you share that analysis, it's very hard to say to someone, uh, you know, the Labour Party is riddled from top to bottom with anti-Semitic abuse. It is, um, you know, pursuing a narrow personality cult. Um, You know, they are rightfully coming after anyone that shows any kind of dissent. But do you know what? You know, stay. It's not a very convincing argument. And in a sense, I don't view that as indifference from colleagues. I just view that as the argument just isn't on their side. It's funny because Jeremy Corbyn, you could easily argue, in at the height of Blairism, was thinking the way you're thinking right now, which is it's impossible. My party's been captured by this this group of people. They've taken my party away from me. But he stuck in and he stuck with it. And he never expected he'd ever be leader. Or he always held the faith somehow that the party would switch back to what he wanted. But you've you've decided, you've made your mind up, that won't happen. And if it does happen, it'll just be 20, 30 years and it's just too long to wait. Well, I've left the low point. I'm not going back. Uh, and that's true of those that have gone. Um, but actually, there is a... Just to challenge it slightly, the Lepai has not flipped back into a position that it once was. Atlee built the nuclear deterrent. Uh, you know, this is... You know, Michael Foote in 83 believed in parliamentary democracy, not a delegate delegated structure you know we've never been in this position before and what you've seen is a strain that's always been in the mix of the Labour Party but has never been dominant in the Labour Party come to dominate it um, now my my assessment is that is a fundamental shift that isn't a you know 10 or 15 years in the wilderness that is it is a fundamentally different party and if you try to unravel 
where the power lies. Um, everything has been so comprehensively captured. The rules are unchangeable because of that. It is just going over there. And I also think that there is a parallel in what's going on in the Conservative Party and that politics are often cyclical. We're at a massive moment at which there's these huge political forces. Stemming from 2008, the financial crisis and so on, a period of drift, coalition government, lack of leadership, confusion about where we go next. And to quote someone that didn't know about us going, uh, you know, the kaleidoscope has been shaken, right? Yeah. You know, the, the pieces are now settling and we will look back in a few years' time and look at Brexit and the realignment of British politics and, uh, you know, and what came next. And we will say that was a really formative moment. Um, and this is a part of it. Now, we've got to move on. Um, while all this has been going on, there's actually been some pretty significant things going on in the Brexit negotiations the government is having with Brussels. Um, Theresa May has ditched the Malthouse Compromise as a plan to replace the backstop, and she's gone to Brussels for some key talks with Jean-Claude Juncker. Oh, Juncker, as uh, Steve Barker would call him. Oh, John Paul Juncker. John pa- <laughs> it's not that easy to say. A fair way to Steve Barker. Brexit is more. I have something like a Brexit fatigue, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but you can speak about Brexit. I can understand your time. No, 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 but because this is a disaster. Um, Paul, there's talk of a deal in the desert on the backstop early next week. Sharm el Sheikh EU summit. Theresa May's going. She wasn't going for a while, and now she is going. Yeah, well, we all got a bit excited early this week when Number 10 confirmed she was going to this EU Arab summit, which is going to be in Egypt in Sharm el-Sheikh in the resort. Um, mainly we got excited because, well, why would she go? Well, to get some face time with other EU leaders. Maybe she could possibly be close to some kind of form of words that could get things through through the House of Commons. Um, the key thing, though, I think, is, is that... From what we see here from Brussels, and today, this is Thursday speaking, uh, um, Juncker himself this morning and Barney have both made clear that we're heading closer to no deal rather than deal. So there's that backstop, backdrop to this. You might think that's just a bit of posturing, but it's certainly significant that she's going. Um, and what's obvious is that she's desperate to have something, maybe early next week, as to, to show to Parliament that actually there's some bit of progress here and you might be able to vote on it. We still don't know if there is going to be a meaningful vote early next week or whether it'll, it'll actually go and be delayed into February, into March again. But I think what will be interesting will be whether or not and, um, the Attorney General, Geoffrey Cox, decides to change his legal advice on the form of words that Brussels comes up with. That's what we keep being... I mean, that's obvious. That's the direction of travel that Number 10 want. They'll get the DUP on board and then a chunk of Tories and then some Labour people. That's the, that's the game plan. The question is whether or not the DUP will swallow it and whether or not the ERG will swallow it. And we're talking loads of acronyms for dear podcast listeners, but I'm, hopefully they understand what I'm talking about. Um, the, the, the Irish Times, Dennis Staunton, who I follow and he works the same rumours, you guys, doesn't yeah. he? Um, he's brilliant on this. Um, he said yesterday in a piece in the Irish Times that actually the real problem now is not so much this whole thing of uh, Brussels saying, yeah, you can time limit your backstop. We, we, they don't really care about this UK-wide thing because it's our invention, so why not just give it a limit? And they'll say yes. Um, the worry is the Northern Ireland-only provisions in the withdrawal agreement, which they're saying there's no way they're going to compromise on behalf of Dublin in ending them or making them not indefinite. And that is a real problem because the DUP are just as upset about that bit as the other bit. So I think it's really, really difficult to call. Does that not help the Tory Brexiteers I suppose they won't abandon the DUP they've formed a bit of an alliance well we come back to no deal don't we they're, they're, a lot of them are desperate for no deal and think that that's the default option and you know that's why Gavin was right you know this whole idea of an amendment next week um, not just a people's vote amendment um, a confirmatory people's vote but the Cooper Cooper Letwin amendment as is now known whether or not that would delay Brexit to allow a bit more time for talks that's why it's going to be really brought into sharp focus next week and I, you just couldn't predict it you really can't and I think one of the things that gets missed is um, there are some members of the ERG that may not vote for um, the deal based on the fact that there's a massive divorce bill in there as well and they're just very very opposed to that so even if some of the ERG are on side it doesn't mean that they all will be 
And you've been following what's the Peter, Kyle and Phil Wilson moment as well this week, haven't you? Yes. Speaking to Labour people about that, what? Yeah, it's got um, a fair amount of support, I would say. Um, There are some kind of senior Labour figures who are saying that um, the party leadership is not ruling out whipping for it, but it very much depends on what, what the timing would be. So if it's tabled in February... Perhaps not, but if it's tabled in March and seen as a, a a real alternative to no deal and the only the last resort, then Labour may whip for it. Dear listener, Gavin was rolling his eyes at that question. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, no one could accuse Westminster of putting, you know, uh, things prematurely, could they? We've got like 800 and something hours to Brexit and we're sitting around going, oh, not yet, just hold back, just one more heave. Look. In the Labour Party, the reason why we left uh, was that we'd crashed through all of the red lines that made it morally indefensible to stay. But we were staying to try and shift that party's position on Brexit to the most sensible outcome. It's become abundantly clear that Jeremy Corbyn will do many things, but he will not be dragged kicking and screaming to people's vote. And without that, that amendment is not going to get passed. Now, whether the events of the last week make him calculate that he has to do that at some point. I don't know. My hunch is probably no, actually, but we'll see. But look, just a a complete absence of leadership from both parties on this issue. Theresa May's strategy is obvious for all to see. It's to run down the clock to make it to the very last moment and force the deal over the line. The Labour Party are perfectly content to do that because it means that they never have to actually implement their quote democratically agreed you know sequencing of events that you know various people can look at from the side and see you know one picture and others look from the other side and see another it they are both just guilty of an abdication of responsibility about it and i'll say this i think the uh, ability of us to accidentally fall into a no deal is radically underpriced i think um this is me personally I still consider it to be the most likely outcome. And by the way, even if you get an extension through Cooper through to the 30th of June, I don't see what fundamentally changes that. Um, And until people really start getting engaged with that and go, do you know what, this is a more important issue than my party affiliation, there's a very real chance we'll go off the cliff. Right, we must move on quickly. It's It's time for the quiz. quiz. It's the quiz. Uh, Guess what the topic of the quiz is this week. Mm, I don't know, splinter parties? Could not quite, but new it's new political parties. Yeah, 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 yeah. So question number one. Um, if you, you want to buzz in, if you want, to <laughs> just just each answer in turn or buzz in or okay, all right, yeah. Okay. Um, question number one: What percentage of the vote did the Liberal SDP alliance get in the nineteen eighty three general election, and how many seats did they win? Crikey, I'm sure Gavin knows this. You must have swatted this up. I've got a feeling it was it was definitely in the twenties. Was it in the twenties? And how many seats? Oh, just trying desperately not to give anything away. I reckon because <laughs> it was close to Labour. Labour was what twenty-eight, oh, and I think they were. I'm I'm going to say twenty-five percent. And a number of seats hmm. didn't get a huge number of seats, did they? What seven? That's my shot in the dark. I think it's 25 and 20, 25% and 20, something like that. I'm going to go much lower and say 18% and um, 5. Gavin's the winner um, on that one, 25% of the vote, 23 MPs. Oh, I've got, oh. got the vote, but not the um, Question number two, who founded UKIP, when and what was its original name? Or kind of well, was it Alan Sked? Oh, that's good. Dr. Alan Sked, because he fell out with Farage, didn't he? He, he actually called Farage a racist, remember? Um, I think it's Dr. I might be wrong. Dr. Alan Sked, <laughs> I've got that in my head. When, did you say, was it founded? Ooh, I'll say 94, 93. An original name. Oh, Christ knows. I don't know. Anyone else want to pipe in? Is it 96? And... Is it, um, uh, was it James Goldsmith as the um, Independence Party? That was a referendum party. Referendum party? Yeah. I'm not good on my right-wing splinter parties, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) Um, I'm going to guess 1997. Right, no, it was Alan Sked, 
Correct, Paul. Great. 1991, he formed the Anti-Federalist League, uh, which soon after transitioned into UKIP. Right. Um, last question. Which party was formed first, the Scottish National Party or the DUP, and when were they formed? Oh, my God. That's a good question. SNP. Wow. Would they have been formed in the 20s? DUP have been in the 20s soon after partition. I'm not going to have a go at this. I'm going to say DUP was right. I, recent. I'm going to say DUP is a relatively recent part. I'm going to say that's sort of maybe even the 80s. I'm going to say 1980s DUP. I'm going to say SNP is older. I think um, the DUP was um, in the 70s. Um, but SNP probably before that, much longer. Before. Gavin, you're sitting this one out. Yeah, totally. No. <laughs> Not even gonna have a stab. Yeah, the SNP was founded in 1934, mm. and DUP was founded by Ian Paisley uh, in 1971 during the Troubles. So Rachel, mm. right, well done. Correct. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for this week. Um, I'll also be taking a break from the podcast next week. But you'll be on the road. Yeah, I'll be travelling through Yorkshire, God's own county, so my own county. Um, to take the temperature of the north as Brexit heats up. Um, with that, I'll leave you with an argument between Philip Lee and Telegraph assistant editor Camilla Tominey on Politics Live over whether Brexit is in fact a turd. But for some reason, somebody somewhere thought embracing this turd was going to be a political bounty. And I'm sorry, this is what's happening. We are seeing our party... people voted for this turd, as yeah. you describe yes, it. Yes, but not the... 17.4 uh, million people but from all parties but it voted for this not, turd, and, as you've described. It was not This democratically convenient turd. Camilla, Camilla. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.